0: Today's show is brought to you by BCB Group. You're going to be hearing more about them later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview with Juliette Klerk. Today, I'm joined by Juliette Klerk of JDI Research. Welcome, Juliette.
1: Thank you very much for having me on your show.
0: Juliette, we've got a lot to talk about. You've got some fantastic charts showing how your macro framework has changed from a disinflationary view to an inflationary view. And then, of course, we got we got to talk about some of the active macro trades that are going on with the the turmoil uh, in European markets due to you know everything with Russia and Ukraine. Before we get started, uh, Julia, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you developed your macro framework and how you sort of your learning evolved over over your career?
1: So my background is pretty much always in strategy, but you know going starting at the um, JP Morgan in 1999 um, I was basically strategies for emerging markets um, then was given a macro book um, by um, um, the head of um, trading in in New York um, which I did for um, three, four years had great fun, but really my passion is, Um, going to find the information, going to find the underlying trends. And I found, um, you know, lots of um, clients and and friends um, over the years that are trading my views um, a lot better than I can do it myself, uh, which basically has allowed me to, um, you know, keep going. Uh, with my passion, which is basically sort of like leveraging traders' brain uh, by, you know, going to look for the information that they would want to be um, uh, getting and, and look for themselves to basically add to their conviction. And I'm, what I'm really uh, doing for, for clients is, is trying to decipher what is noise and, and, and what is the, the trend that, um, you know, we basically want to trade uh, and how we want to use the noise. Um, to to actually um, benefit and, and make the noise an opportunity a trading opportunity.
0: Mm. So so you can use the signal to identify that the price should be here. The noise can drive it from here to here, and then you, you you can you can buy. So the the noise can help you. That's interesting. What do you see? You know, so much turmoil going on in European markets. The Russian stock market is selling off extremely hard. The Russian ruble is at an all time low. European markets selling off as well. Price of oil, you know, Brent back over $100. What to you uh, seems like a signal, and what to you seems like a noise?
1: I mean, that, that's that's a great question because um, we, we're basically adding uh, to a macro backdrop uh, that I find uh, has undergone a, a complete uh, paradigm shift uh, over the crisis, and, and especially in, in Europe. Uh, we're adding to that uh, geopolitical backdrop, which is undergoing uh, a complete uh, paradigm shift uh, as well, and especially uh, especially in Europe. Um, I think it, it's not it's not noise because we there won't be like a, a going back to uh, where we were before. I think it it appears pretty clearly uh, to me uh, that Russia wants to basically undermine. Uh, the post the post World War II um, uh, peace um, order and, and and that's really what, what what's at stake here uh, I think what's at stake is really trying to undermine NATO and and, and push um, as far as basically trying to see whether there is such thing as an Article Five um, you know which is basically saying that if you attack a NATO member you 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 attack uh, all members. And I think, you know, what really Russia is trying to show that, you know, basically NATO is um, um, is, is potentially like brand dead, um, which obviously, you know, does not appear to be the case um, when you're actually looking uh, at what happened uh, this weekend. I think what happened this weekend on the back of uh, the very strong uh, Ukrainian resolve to to fight back and... You know, not that I had uh, um, any doubt about that, but I think many, um, you know, geopolitical actors were probably looking for Russia to be a lot stronger uh, than they've been. And and that's basically waking up the whole uh, Europe, NATO, um, and and, and putting everything uh, back into, you know, complete revamp of like uh, geopolitics. In fact, we're basically creating a European... Uh, geopolitical power. I mean, Germany is no longer pacifist. Uh, Sweden is no longer neutral. Um, you know, the Europe, um, you know, you're looking at like seven years ago, we were talking about whether uh, we're going to be bailing out a, a EU member. And, and we're basically now like delivering um, jet fighters to, to, to a neighbor that's been um, attacked. And, you know, we shouldn't even, uh, you know, don't forget as well, even basically uh, Switzerland uh, has gone out of, of its neutral uh, position uh, to actually, you know, uh, support uh, the EU, UK and, and US is basically in basically freezing uh, Central Bank, the, 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 the Russian Central Bank's assets, which is really in, in terms of like monetary Um, uh, in terms of of monetary process basically it's like the nuclear option Uh, you know we we should really bear in mind that since the invasion of of Crimea it's been Russia's like main um, main concern to basically bunkerize uh, the economy and and part of that uh, was obviously to amass enough reserves to be able to live potentially without um, you know uh, import, exporting um, without exporting energy uh, and basically potentially deprive um, uh, Europe of, of, of those obviously key exports. Um, so, so that's, you know, basically the, the whole world has used the nuclear option on, on that, and we will see w- what happens. Uh, but what is clear is like basically a European nation has been, you know, as, has emerged uh, out of, um, of COVID first. Uh, but you know the the, the second thing is ob- obviously geopolitical, and and I don't think we will ever go back to to sort of like have uh, spreads blow up to, to to sort of like levels we've seen before because uh, there is now like a union uh, which has shown that you know it's got very strong resolve. I mean, uh, I think EU was I mean mind mind blowing over the weekend is how you know fast and how far EU has moved. Um, You know, even much faster than than the UK, which was obviously, um, you know, claiming that being out of the EU would would allow them to be a lot more nimble. Uh, And and that's not really been the case at all. So, yeah, Yeah. we're basically adding to a macro paradigm paradigm shift, uh, a geopolitical paradigm shift. Um, It's a move um, in both cases, which is obviously uh, towards like a, a very unstable uh, equilibrium, but that's the one we're going to have to get used to.
0: How how many of those sanctions do you think will be felt within Europe by people like people in Germany, people in France? You know, I know Germany is a huge importer of energy and is it really depends on natural gas and oil from, from Russia. Uh, do you think that that could have negative impacts on economic growth and, and you know, to bear uh, European stocks?
1: I mean, there's no question that the risk is, is obviously stagflation. And what, what you can see here is basically all the um, shocks, um, you know, the supply shocks uh, that have happened. Uh, so you've got the OPEC embargo in 1990, 1973. You've got the second oil crisis in 1979, uh, Kuwait uh, invasion. What's really started so far um, my, my, my thesis has, has really been that, um, you know, commodities have been really strong, but it, it's not been a, a, a supply shock. It's been much more of a demand shock. Um, in, other, in other words, uh, we've exited um, the, the COVID crisis with a lot stronger uh, demand. Than, you know, demand was basically like a, a deficient uh, for the past like uh, three decades and and i think there is a paradigm shift and we can discuss why i think that um over the over the covid covid crisis but basically what i believe was the case until you know january was that demand uh, global demand completely justified um, the the new trend in commodity crisis in commodity prices what might happen uh, in, in going forward is that uh, that demand shock, what actually started as a demand shock turn, turns into a supply shock, where basically commodity prices, energy prices are no longer um, in, in tune uh, with global demand, in which case we'll move away from, from, from basically inflation as a reflation trend to basically stagflation uh, with the risk that basically higher price um, you know, trigger a trigger recession, uh, but I don't think, you know, I mean, that's clearly the risk uh, right now. And in terms of whether it's likely to happen, well, the problem today is like, you know, Russia is still, um, you know, exporting the the, the gas, uh, Russia is, is still exporting the oil, um, but if you're coming from if you basically see the, the the fact that um you know assets their assets are, are basically being frozen then you might uh, legitimately ask why you would keep like basically selling uh energy if if you actually can't access the assets uh on, on on the back of that so for me that that's really the key risk whether it will happen we'll see um you know i, I'm, I don't think any geopolitical expert will be able to tell you um, you know, with with any certainty. But, but that's really what's at stake here.
0: Yeah, so uh, Julia, just to illustrate a few points, what we're seeing here on this chart in black is the Bloomberg Commodity Index. And when the economy is running hot, there's demand for commodities because it's an input to economic production. So when the price of commodities goes up, uh, that can you know, that can be one of two causes. Number one, demand, because the economy is running hot. And if that were the case, you would expect the ISM manufacturing new orders index, which is in blue, to also rise. But I, what I believe you've highlighted in this chart is when the commodity index goes up, but the ISM manufacturing index did not go up. And in other words, it's not reflation, it's not growth, it's not demand, it is, it's a, supply it, it is a supply-driven.
1: Exactly. I,
0: um, can you explain the significance between uh, I mean, you you already said that supply-driven shock can cause a recession. Why, why is that the case, and why is that different than a demand-driven?
1: Basically, there's like two-way inflation can can affect um, uh, consumption. It, in the end, what really matters is is demand, right? So, if you've got a shock uh, of inflation, prices go up, um, you know, purchasing power go down. Um, Everyone is feeling the squeeze and and you you basically end up with like a a demand squeeze. And and that's what I'm calling a supply shock. What we had uh, so far um, post-crisis wasn't... Um, a, a much of a supply shock. I mean, I think some argued it was in 2021, uh, but with wages actually picking up as well, it looked less and less uh, like a supply shock and more and more like a, a persistent uh, inflation. Uh, so, so the first way inflation can work is is basically you know you're feeling much poorer. The second way, but the the the, the, the second way um, inflation can impact the macro outlook is by making you feeling a lot richer. And how does it work? Well, so what's happened post-COVID is like, as a reaction to higher prices, higher inflation, you actually have like um, um, price expectations moving higher. And, you know, what's really interesting is that uh, many Fed members have argued that, you know, Long-term inflation expectations are actually anch- anchored, and therefore, you know, we don't have to worry about like wage-price spiral. What I'm arguing here is that it's really the one-year uh, outlook that that matters, and what we've seen everywhere in the world is actually inflation expectations actually trending higher, and and even in the U.S., where you know the trends are are, are much more advanced than, than in the rest of the world, we're continuing uh, to make new high. In one year um, inflation expectation now why does it matter well because the first um effect of, of inflation is obviously higher price it's um, contractionary but when you actually have like a, um, um, a labor force which has you know very strong uh, bargaining power you know what, what you can do about inflation is basically asking for like a, a higher wage and that's exactly what's happening. So the first uh, shock, the first in, the first bout of inflation is is like a shock uh, on your purchasing power. Uh, but then, if you you know get used uh, to it, and, and, and workers actually have a bargaining power, what happens is basically that inflation expectations actually turn into higher wages, and and that uh, in turns basically feeds. Uh, what I'll call the um, uh, the nominal illusion, which basically says that you know whatever happens to inflation, you still um, feel richer if your wage um, is higher, and and that really interestingly goes back to um, uh, the, the the actual reason why the Fed is pursuing like a two percent inflation target. So what happened in 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 1996? Is you had um, uh, Yellen on on the FOMC, and at the time um, it was uh, Greenspan that that was the chairman, and and there was like a whole argument about whether we should be they should be pursuing a two percent target or one percent target, or, or why not like basically zero inflation, and really interestingly, um, Yellen actually argued that you need a little bit of inflation, and 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 the reason for arguing for, for, for two person was like the, the sort of like the greasing uh, the will argument. So, so what is the greasing the will uh, argument is she, she basically cited um, um, a survey from um, Yale economist Robert Schiller, who actually mm-hmm. actually asked, um, you know, surveyed um, everyone, you know, everybody um, um, and, and asked what um, if your pay went up, would you feel more satisfaction in in your job, more sense of fulfillment? And that even if prices went up just as much. And Yellen was like really, um, you know, proud and and, and excited to report that 28% fully agreed and 21% partially agreed. Uh, and there was only twenty seven percent which completely disagreed. So what the survey is telling you is basically, I give you ten percent uh, nominal increase in in your wage and and I, I increase price by like ten um, percent um, as well, and and you're gonna feel better. So you might as well like basically have a little bit of inflation, and that's the greasing the will argument. Uh, what's really funny is the, is the in a way, uh, is that um, the Fed at the time? Uh, y- Yellen also added at the time that um, in in that actual survey, no economist uh, went for um, um, you know being more more satisfied, and you know everybody had a good giggle um, in the room. What I want to s- say here is 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 really um, that inflation is a very strong economic stimulant when the everyman in the switch which is actually driving uh, macro trends think that in- inflation will be persistent so there's few reasons for that Firstly is obviously you're getting nominal increase uh, you might only find out later that it buys you uh, less of of your normal um, um, good purchase uh, the second thing is obviously when you know when there is inflation inventories are actually um, higher inventories is actually, uh, a plus it you know it costs less it costs much less to have high inventories when when there is inflation um and and the same thing for for hiring as well you basically want to hoard uh, everything and and frontload your consumption when you actually believe that inflation trends will continue so that's one uh macro trend that we haven't really been talking much uh, because the last time we had anywhere close to um you know wage price power that, that we have right now was in the 70s and, and, and 80s.
0: So you said there are three reasons why rising inflation expectations can actually help growth. The third one makes sense to me, but you want to hoard things. You know, If I think the price of milk is going to be 10% more expensive next month, I want to buy a lot of milk now. I don't want to buy a lot of milk next month. Uh, could you walk through the first two? I don't know if, if I fully understood those. And in Inventories, for what,
1: example. Inventories, just if you're like a company, obviously, you know, you mm-hmm. want to you want to hoard as much inventory as possible, which, you know, we've never seen in, in, in the past 30 years. Everybody was like trying to cut inventories and, and basically like go to like a just in time sort of like a, a supply cycle. Uh, but in, in an environment where prices are going to go up, you want much more inventories because it's actually going to make you money.
0: OK, uh, why is it, it going to make you money?
1: Well, more because more. You, you buy your employ you, you buy your inventory at like a ten percent discount to when where it's gonna be in in in, in, in twelve months, right? You buy your commodities, uh, you buy all your supplies. All your supplies are gonna be like um, you know, if there's ten percent inflation, you wanna buy everything today, sell it later, but you obviously paid it a lot less today. Yes.
0: Okay, that makes sense. It's like the corporate it's the corporate version of consumers wanting to buy milk now, except they wanna it, buy their parts, their, their their your commodities now. Okay, okay, and then what's exactly. number one?
1: And it's the same thing for, like, um, employees as well. If you're worried you're not going to be able to hire employees, firstly, you're not going to fire anyone. And secondly, you might hire a lot more people and maybe make them work a little bit less, but to basically, like... Of the of the luxury of being able to uh, to expand when you feel like you're you're gonna need to expand when you're in an inflationary environment you basically want to hoard everything you want to hold commodities you want to hoard supply you want to be hoarding uh, employees and 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 also that's basically on the back of like uh, the 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 flip side is basically that the consumer wants to um, basically front load consumption as well but but the, but there's another side as uh, so at the top. In the dark green line, so top dark green line, you can see that in five-year nominal yields we're now back to uh, you know I don't know, that, I updated that chart this morning at, uh, we were like a, a bit above one eighty so that's about the same level as we were pre pre crisis, but um, if you look and if you're looking in real terms, uh, which is the the, the green line uh, at the bottom. Uh, you can see that we're still a lot more. Um, we're still a lot lower, like about one hundred forty base points below like two thousand nineteen levels, and, and that, of course, is 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 the effect that it will have on on you know when you're borrowing. You're not borrowing at one eighty five percent. You're actually borrowing at minus one hundred thirty base points, and and that's obviously the the, the last. Uh, reason why inflation is such a stimulant, because obviously, even if it, it makes the debt uh, disappear at the sovereign level. And I think everybody knows about that. Um, you know, you're talking about completely different game. And and to go back to Europe, you know, it it's also the reason why I'm like so uh, positive on, on Europe is that, you know, pre-crisis, you had, you know, let's say you were looking at uh, debt, g- debt to GDP ratio in Italy or Greece, and, and you had maybe like you know at best like 1% inflation and and maybe like a 1% real growth and and that's basically like uh 2% uh nominal gdp growth which is you know with 2% nominal gdp growth it's really difficult for your uh, debt to gdp ratio to to actually improve if you've got suddenly if, if suddenly you've got like 4% uh, nominal growth and uh, sorry, like four percent inflation and and say like 2 percent uh, real growth, then you're talking about like potentially like six percent nominal growth per year. Your debt to GDP ratio like will basically improve but on its own, and that's true for countries. It's obviously true for corporates, but it's also true for you and me. Um, if you can if you can borrow at like deeply negative real yields. Um, you know, you you will be basically richer by design uh, next year and, and the year after if you believe that um, whatever you're buying is going up.
0: Uh, Julia, this chart is fantastic. And I want to dig into it. But before we do, could you uh, sort of just zoom out and describe when you say a, a macro paradigm shift? Is it what you're talking about inflation? Is it when you're talking about reflation? And also, why now? What was the cause of this paradigm shift?
1: I think for the past um, 30 years, there's um, there's been really, um, you know, certainly in like a macro world, there's like a very entrenched belief that the reason for low yields and, and low growth potential, um, low real yields, equilibrium yields and, and growth potential is, is basically demographics. So, you know, we used to, for example, if you take the US, we used to be uh, growing in temp- the labor force uh, above say like uh, we above 2% in in the 2000s and we're basically going to be converging to, to to converging to just above zero uh, in the men in the mid uh, 25s and that there's a very strong belief that that's the reason uh, why uh, yields have collapsed and 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 so we haven't moved away from that macro uh, shift and you know basically COVID happened and we we're just gonna go back to those kind of like a uh really detrimental and 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 trends of like weak demographics and and therefore weak um and therefore like low and potentially negative uh, real yields now what's really interesting is um there was like a, a um a, piece uh, a research piece that was actually uh, presented in august uh, last year at jackson hall and the piece yeah. is called um what explains the decline in r star rising income inequality versus demographic shift
0: Sorry, R-Star is, is that, the, that that's the natural rate of interest right
1: yeah r star is the is the equilibrium real yield real yield okay yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is driving um, the very low R-star, like real equilibrium reals? Is it weak demographics or is it um, inequalities? And what um, the report actually showed is that inequalities explain a lot, um, a, a, a much bigger part of like why you know, potential growth has, has come down in, in the past three decades. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you're actually looking at um, Kansas City Fed estimate, um, you know, basically high income households save about like three to three point three point five percent, percentage points more of the national income than before 1980. And, and, and that's really the key. If all the income. If basically a growing part of income is going to um, households that are not going to spend it, you've got a massive um, issue with like a, of deficient uh, demand. And
0: yeah, they're not going it, to the store and, and buying uh, chips. They're, they're exactly, investing and, it in bonds or savings accounts that earn you know one percent or less. So it's inherently disinflationary. And those those cohorts are the wealthier cohorts who who their marginal propensity to, to spend, a fancy way of saying, you know, how much money do they spend is quite low. You know, if they, for every $1,000 they, they get, they may only, I'm just making numbers up, you know, they may only spend 400 of it and six, $600 of it goes in the bank. Um, whereas for, for folks who are on the lower income spectrum, they spend all of their money, in some cases, more than all of their money.
1: Exactly. So the, the issue is like the second chart um, in, um, in of, of my... Um... Of my chart pack, uh, which is showing non-farm real compensation per hour uh, in in light blue, and non-farm business productivity uh, in, in in dark blue, and what you can see here is basically uh, that wages and you know compensation have not have, have diverged from productivity for the past thirty years, and and that's really the main issue uh, with demand. Now why um, am I saying that? If you go back to the first uh, page, um, you can see that you know it's it's unprecedented, uh, but basically wages are exploding um, at the low income end and you know not really going anywhere at the um, uh, at the at the high end and And that's got massive uh, impact on 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 basically uh, aggregate. Uh, demand and and I really believe that's a uh, paradigm change, uh, which is brought uh, by the fact that you know I think in in the past two, uh, three years and certainly over the crisis. Um, money has been like coming so easily whether it's um you know with with crypto or or, or you know tech stocks or you know any stocks to be honest you could ba- basically buy anything in, in the past two years
0: this episode is brought to you by bcb group europe's leading provider of crypto friendly business banking for institutions in the crypto space they also provide trading services allowing you to trade fx and cryptocurrency quickly and at scale they specialize in efficient execution of large orders in illiquid markets. So if you are an institution looking to make high volume trades, you need to check out BCB Group because a great trade idea is worth nothing if you can't execute it, and that is exactly what BCB Group helps you to do. Their mission is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. Really glad to have them as a sponsor. So if you want to take control of your digital assets, please check them out at bcbgroup.com slash Jack. That's bcbgroup.com slash Jack. Thank you. And let's get back to the show.
1: So I think there's really like a, the, 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 the increased um, bargaining power in, in, in the labor. Uh, in the labour force is not just the fact that you know there is a supply squeeze due to people wanting to stay at home um, because of um, you know because of health concerns or whatever. I think there is really uh, this realization that yes, I'm, I still want to work, but not at any not at any price. And and obviously it's helping that when you've got really strong demand, uh, there's there's a need for like a, a much larger. Um, uh, Number of of, of workers, uh, which has basically allowed uh, the lower end uh, jobs to 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 really explode in terms of uh, in terms of like real real wages. Some will be saying like, okay, they they got a wage increase in in nominal terms, but but not in real terms. Actually, that's not true. Um, if you're looking at um, U.S. real hourly wage over the crisis, we're still growing on trend, um, but but um, the lower lower end. Um, jobs uh, in real term over the over the crisis uh, which is basically leisure and, and hospitality and um, that's actually gone up almost seven percent in real terms uh, over the crisis so we're not talking small numbers here uh and, and we are you know potentially talking about um, um a move that that is not just uh, happening over the crisis but that will basically uh, keep uh, sort of like um, uh, making potentially like productivity uh, wages reconverge or somewhat reconverge uh, to the level of of productivity, which is which means that in the end uh, aggregate income is is going to be consuming a lot more, and and you, you you're sort of like um, getting rid of one problem uh, in terms of um, you know demand deficiency.
0: Yeah, I think I think we should note that this is. Uh, real wages, but it doesn't take into account the labor supply or the unemployment rate. So like you see a spike in uh, leisure and hospitality earnings in March of 2020. Obviously, that was not a good time to be, you know, a lot of workers lost their jobs, but the ones who kept them were, were paid more. Um, yeah. but, but now that it's adjusted and now that the work is, is, you know, the unemployment rate is back to low levels. Yeah, absolutely. So Juliet, a, a lot of people will say, sure, wages are going up, but inflation is rising higher than wages. So it's actually destroying demand. Real income is going down. You have a retort to that that I think is really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about what we're seeing on this chart?
1: So, I mean, that's, that's an, another way of saying exactly the, the same thing um, I, I was saying before is basically, uh, yes, there is um, on aggregate um, less uh, real income. And you can see that in, in dark blue, uh, real income has, has started dipping uh, below trend. But real spending is actually still keeping on trend because of these like uh, moves, which we we could call like internal moves, where basically if you're moving more of income and wealth towards the the poorer cohort, then you're going to get much more spending out of the same income.
0: Mm. Be- because of their of their lower marginal propensity to, to spend, uh, Juliet, how sustainable do you think that this reflationary impulse will be? You know, there are some who say. You had a fiscal sugar rush in 2020 and 2021, but now that fiscal uh, support is being removed, you're going to have a fiscal crash and that, that spending will decline. I take it that you're not very convinced by this argument. Why is that?
1: Well, I mean, uh, f- for me, really, the, the one chart to look at is the um, inflation expectations chart. As long as, um, as long as we're not starting to deep lower on that. Um, I don't see any reason why we're not going to keep like spiraling um, higher in terms of like uh, you know normal, nominal illusion is feeding, is feeding uh, nominal consumption and, and, and you're basically like um, getting um, higher rates on, on the back of that and, and higher inflation. Uh, what's really key here and another reason why we have reached a paradigm shift is because it's not only happening in the U.S., um, you know, you can see on, on my chart on, on page 14 that it's also happening in the EU. Um, it's happening in, in UK. And amazingly enough, it is also happening in Japan. So, you know, in EU, UK and, and, and Japan, we haven't really seen yet... Uh, the effect on, on higher wages, but trust me, uh, uh, there is like strikes uh, going on, you know, whether you're looking at um, uh, in UK, there's like a, a tube strike, um, you know, there is t- strikes in, in, in France to ask for higher wages. And I've got no question um, in my mind that we, 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 we will see the, the same sort of like, um, you know, wage um, higher prices turning into higher wages uh, in Europe as well. And again, obviously, that assumes that um, you know the Ukraine situ- Ukraine versus Russia uh, situation uh, doesn't sort of like create a, a supply shock that basically just kills demand, he- heads into reflate um, uh, recession, and and means that we're basically getting stagflation instead of like the the reflation trends that I'm I'm looking at right now. Well, that I was looking at before mm-hmm. the crisis, anyway. Yeah.
0: So just to be clear, you know, when someone has prices go up around them, they have two choices. They can either consume less, so spend less money, or they can earn more in income and, you know, ask their boss to, for more income or, or change jobs to have a higher salary. Uh, can, could, just to be clear, could you flesh out why you think workers will be able to do that? Because, you know, workers always want more money, right? Like, what is it specifically about this environment that uh, you think will allow sort of inflation to continue?
1: Well, firstly, I mean, workers always want more money, but, you know, they've never had such great arguments. Um, You know, on on one side, there's obviously like, uh, you know, according to countries, by the five to seven percent inflation, um, you know, which is here for for everyone to see. Uh, And on the other side, there is pretty much full employment wherever you look, Right. And um, whether you look in, in U.S., U, uh, U.K., uh, I don't think we are at full employment, but we've, we're nearer and, and clearly labor markets very hot.
0: Mm. Um, can you talk to us about China? I know that the Chinese credit impulse, maybe you could uh, explain what that is. It went down sharply in summer of 2021, but since then it's, it's gone back up. And that, you know, gives you, uh, you know, and a lot of people hope for, for, for reflation. What is the Chinese credit impulse and what does it signal to, to you? Let's take a look at this chart.
1: So credit impulse in, in each region. So, you know, I, I look at it um, in, in Europe, in the U.S. The U.S. one is, is great because you actually get, um, you can actually calculate it every Friday evening out of um, Fed data. Uh, the Chinese one is only updated monthly. Um, and, and the same for like the ECB one. Yeah, I really like this, this aggregate here and you can see uh, in the US, it's it's, it's really interesting that, um, you know, so I've got here like credit card and, and also revolving loans, which are which is basically as high as, as it's ever been. Uh, the overall credit impulse, um, and I'm looking always at like six months one, which is more of a uh, leading indicator than, and, and goes obviously faster than the, the, the one-year one. Uh, so what you're seeing in in the U.S. is because um, obviously demand is not only the income you're making, and so basically how do I define demand? Um, we've been talking a lot about like whether demand is deficient or, or whether you know it's it's we're in the deflationary uh, curve, and demand is is basically uh, the increase in the, in the workforce plus the real increase in in, in wages, but also how much you're going to be leveraging that demand, right? If I give you uh, 100 and and I give you like a a raise, so let's say you're getting 110, and you actually really strongly believe that inflation is going to be 15% this year, then nothing prevents you from like leveraging your, your income and basically go and borrow whatever, like you might get you know according to whatever country you might manage to like borrow like 100 or, or like between 50 and and 100. so the credit impulse is basically uh, complementing um, you know the, the picture you're getting from the demand side but by, by telling you um, a lot more about animal spirits and how much um the consumer actually is prepared to leverage his income or or not and what you can see over the crisis is that obviously, um, you know, the credit impulse has has peaked um, in the U.S., but we're still basically at levels that was, that that's been unseen uh, for the past few decades, and and we're actually stabilizing for for now at this level, at a very strong level, uh, which is telling me that the animal spirit is is intact. It's it's really interesting because it it leads uh, consumption. Uh, it's it's a very strong leading indicator of of consumption consumption with about like six months um, leading. Um, same, it's a similar thing in 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 China. So what I've got on 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 chart nine uh, is basically the six months uh, credit impulse in in China, and obviously because China has been you know such a, a big part of um, global manufacturing. Uh, it's it's very strongly correlated with like global PMI manufacturing. Ex- obviously, it's it's better to uh, take out China here, uh, but you know basically China is like the global manufacturing engine, and and when you're seeing uh, um, you know leverage up, you you basically uh, sort of know that um, you know that China is 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 going to turn from uh, being a, a cyclical headwind, the um, cyclical. Uh, Headwind in in 2021 to basically become a very strong uh, tailwind in, in 2022. So for me, that that's like um, in terms of like the macro sh- paradigm shift between like 2021 and 2022. There's first um, the fact that um, we are kicking in a, a sort of like uh, price. Um, wage wage price uh, spiral. And, and that's not only in the US. It's it's happening everywhere in the world. And, and that's really important. Uh, the sort of like synchronized um, move uh, means that, you know, basically the Fed will be able to hike uh, without um, shooting itself in the foot by basically strengthening the dollar and in turn, uh, basically shrinking uh, the global monetary uh, base. Uh, you know, the d- stronger dollar means like a... a equally um, sh- an equal shrinking in the in the, the global monetary base. Um, so so it's really interesting here that we've had such a pickup. Um, you know, and that really happened in like three months. We were still like basically deeply negative in terms of like the credit impulse in, in China. But obviously, you know, from December, there was really this move like with uh, Chinese Monetary Authority to really like uh, uh, promote um, credit again. And and that's basically how we, we, we turn from like a deeply negative uh, credit impulse to like a quite, you know, strongly positive credit impulse, which is basically telling us that, um, you know, the the risk of, of China being a, a major break, um, especially to the manufacturing world, uh, has dramatically diminished. And in fact, the, the, the opposite could happen.
0: Julia, I'm really glad you brought up because inflation and growth will be robust. That gives a lot of room for the Fed to tighten monetary conditions, to raise rates without causing recession. Really interesting that you say that, Julia, because I, I know you noted uh, in, in your work that You actually don't think the Federal Reserve will hike as much as the market currently thinks. I don't know exactly how many hikes are hiked in for the the terminal rate, um, you know, somewhere between seven, seven and eight. Um, But do you think that they will get that high? And also, you know, how many do you think they, they will get to in 2022? And if you think that, may I ask why? Because, you know, the Fed can hike, as you just said. They have a lot of room. Why won't they take advantage of that?
1: So, the, firstly, I think we need to be a bit more precise because I do think um, that we can price in more hikes, just not upfront. Um, so I mm-hmm. think uh, it, so. So my recommendation is to basically pay five years rather than just um, you know uh, looking at a front loading of of hikes that would you know potentially um mean that um you know you basically kill the uh, the golden egg um, too early so the the reason why i think the fed will be you know cautious um this year and you know certainly uh, a lot more cautious than you know when when we basically were as far as like went as far as pricing 175 base points um this year is um I, I mean there's there's a lot of reason for that i think firstly um i think the fed wrongly um, believes that um, long-term inflation expectations are still anchored, um, and because you know they're, they're more looking at like five-year, ten-year, which indeed is has not broken um, broken up yet. Uh, but I think it's wrong; it's it's the wrong uh, aggregate to look at because I think what really will be driving the wage-price sp- spiral is um, is one-year uh, inflation expectations, and they are still uh, moving up. And, and actually trending higher. There is like a huge um, negative base effects uh, that are coming in uh, from, you know, in, in the next couple of months. And, and I think that will buy uh, the Fed times in, in time in terms of like, um, you know, continuing with in, incremental like 25 base point steps uh, rather than, than sort of like going 50 in, in 50s. Um, Another really important thing that we haven't touched based about is is the flattening, uh, the bare flattening of of the curve, um, and and that really reverts to the the first thing we were discussing, which is what is driving, um, what is the underlying macro macro trend, is it just weak demographics, or is there like something that um you know that that is telling us that. Uh, our star so the real equilibrium yield is going to be potentially much higher in in the short to to medium term and that would be uh, on the back of 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 lower inequalities and and basically like stronger wages especially at the um, at, at the low end of the of the of the wage cohort. Well, I think that dichotomy between um, you know long end yields being like really anchored, by weak demographics. And let's say, you know, let, let's say we go back to uh, pre-crisis level of like uh, real yields that that takes us basically, um, which was basically zero to zero to like 50 base point. So it tells you like long end uh, yields can't go a lot higher than 2.5 percent. The problem is in the short term, um, I think, it's possible that um, the real equilibrium yields is is a lot higher, uh, you know, potentially 75 uh, to 1%, which is telling you that you will not get to restrictive level before, say, like 3% um, at the front end. Now, the problem is if you actually hike to 3% into an economy which is, um, in the the long run, um, sort of like... um, um, as, as a real yield of, of, of like two percent, you will invert the curve. And, and I think that's really something um, that the, the, the Fed will want to avoid because, um, you know, if you invert the curve, then you might actually, um, you know, shoot yourself in. It, it could actually become like self a recession can become self-fulfilling. Uh, banks will be lending uh, a, a lot more. You'll constrain credit and in the end basically like, uh, um, have a larger effect on, on demand uh, than you might want to have. Uh, so I don't actually think that like, the flattening of the curve is, is telling us anything more this cycle than the fact that basically front-end R star is a lot higher than, than it's been in the past um, with a, a long-term R star, which is still basically like, anchored because of, um, of, of weak demographics. Um, which, which means that the Fed will be, you know, hesitant uh, to get um, to, to get to the level that that becomes actually restrictive to the economy, uh, which basically means that they're behind the curve. They stay behind the curve a lot longer than um, you know what markets currently believe. Is that making sense?
0: Yeah. So uh, I, I think so. Uh, the, so the, the yield curve uh, is, a, is a you know curve. It has uh, the yields on one, and then the maturity for, um, on the on the x-axis. Uh, yeah. and you know, typically you have a spread like the 10 year minus the two year, the two 10 spread, uh, when that decreases, uh, as it has been, uh, over the past year, I think it's now at something like 40 basis points. Uh, it gets very close to inversion and you know, yield curve flattening typically is a, something of an ominous sign and yield curve inversion an inversion curve. A lot of people say it predicts a recession. We saw one in the spring of 2018. So yeah why exactly is a yield curve flattening not ominous i don't think
1: anybody believes that that the inflation reflation story is like a, is there to stay for 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 the very long run but you still need rates to become restrictive if you want to slow the slow demand enough that you actually kill those wage that wage price uh, spiral uh, which is currently ongoing so um, another thing on like um on 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 the curve is that i don't think um, a flattening is ominous in itself. Yes, inversion is is basically when you're starting to price uh, that the Fed will need to cut rates, um, and, and that tends to, you know, in fact, that almost always uh, leads to um, to recession. Or uh, let's put it this way: recession is always like preceded by like an inversion on the curve. But the the the, the opposite is not necessarily true. Um, but yeah, the thing is is as long as you don't have an inversion. It, all the curve flattening is telling you is that you're pricing, you're pricing hikes and you know, not a lot more than that. And, and as long as the curve is not inverted, it means uh, basically the economy is able to weather those hikes. So, I mean, for me, that's not an amazing sign. It's, it's basically a sign of like going back to, um, to neutral.
0: Interesting. Julia, do you think that the, the situation in Ukraine and in Russia Do you think that could delay the European Central Bank, the ECB's plans to hike rates and then even perhaps uh, do quantitative tightening?
1: I mean, definitely it will delay. Um, I mean, I think that the ECB is very, um, you know, focused uh, on the fact that um, inflation in Europe has been much more supply driven than is the case in the U.S., um, if I had to give you like a, an estimate, I would say probably 80 percent inflation in, in the U.S. is demand driven. Um, I think in, in Europe, you, you only have like budding sort of like reflationary cycle where wages are just starting to to increase. So I think there's basically 80 percent um, of inflation is supply driven. So if you're starting to hike into uh, inflationary cycle, which is supply driven, you run a very high risk of, of, of basically, you know, um, um, uh, pushing the economy to stagflation um, and in the end you're going to get rid of inflation but you're also going to get rid of growth so I, I think that the ECB is very um, keen to avoid this and and you know I, I don't see the ECB like normalizing in um in um, um you know in in a shock in a supply shock uh, in an energy supply shock and I think they've already been saying like um before, even before, like, um, you know, Russia decided to declare um, war on, on, on Ukraine, uh, the ECB was already keen to really um, uh, allow like the, the, tr- the green transition to happen uh, without basically standing in the middle on and killing demand uh, on the back of, of basically like higher uh, energy prices uh, in the short to medium term that will allow uh, a move to basically like being self-sufficient with, with clean energy.
0: Mm. Uh, Juliet, uh, commodity price inflation—you know, the price of commodities going up—has just been front and center uh, since fall of twenty twenty. A lot of analysts expect it to not continue. They, they think that the bloom is off the rose. How do? How? What do you? Th- what's your outlook on commodity prices? Uh, how is that informed by your your reflationary view? And then you know. How how high do you think things could get with a lot of these commodities that, that Russia produces a lot of that, you know, perhaps will no longer be able to to enter Europe?
1: Yeah, I mean, long um, um, paid rates and long commodities has been like the central um, my central recommendations. Um, you know, luckily, it's sort of like a, Um, being emphasized by like uh, uh, the crisis, because you're basically adding to a strong demand backdrop and and central banks that are still very much behind the curve. And obviously here I'm talking mainly about the Fed, uh, which means that, you know, you don't kill demand enough to actually uh, rein in uh, commodity prices. So, um, you know, the the supply side, the supply shock is is really just adding to, to, to these trends. Uh, and And I don't see the Fed really being uh, too shy. I mean, I, I think you know if 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 the um, if the current crisis like continues, uh, I don't think there is a chance that the Fed will go like fifty base point in in March, but it probably still will do uh, twenty five base point. because mm-hmm. and, you know, I think the Fed is cognizant of the fact that um, you know u s. Uh, demand um, is, is 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 extremely strong. And spiralling uh, via higher wages, uh, which means that you know uh, commodity prices um, can stay uh, very strong globally. And obviously, what's adding to, to to that view as well is is the fact that China, uh, which is one of the main uh, consumer of of, of commodities. Uh, is also obviously pushing the the accelerator as well. So you've got basically a world which is uh, synchronized in in terms of demand, and I, I really struggle to see uh, in a world that is demand synchronized, how you you're actually going to get like uh, commodities to turn down, and um, given given all central banks are still very far behind the curve.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. If you have a reflationary view, pretty hard for commodities to 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 perform poorly. Uh, Julia, what's your, your uh, impact on the broader equity market?
1: My A-trades really is just basically um, higher nominals, stronger commodities. Um, and, and I want to start to pick, um, you know, some, some value in in, in European equities. Uh, but obviously, you know, bear in mind the massive uncertainty uh, around uh, not just macro, but, but also uh, geopolitical. What I mean by like massive um, uncertainty uh, in macro is that, obviously, when you're relying on, on inflation and animal spirits, it can go all one way or, or all the other. Um, and, and, you know, something like a war can obviously, you know, destroy, um, you know, reflation as, as, you know, as quickly as it's actually happened, which is basically the last three, four months. Um, so, you know, we have to be cognizant of the fact that we are in, in very unstable, uh, equilibrium. And so I, I like to stay with what's more liquid as well. Uh, I, you know, I wouldn't even talk about like Russia.
0: So you said it's a time of immense macro uncertainty. Those are the times that often, uh, assets like gold do well. Uh, what's your outlook on gold at this juncture, as well as, you know, perhaps cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, the latter of which I, I know you, you've been following a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean um, crypto. You know what? We have like capital controls in in Russia. Uh, you know, I would be if crypto doesn't pick up uh, a bit this week, then I'm going to be really worried about the asset class. Uh, in terms of gold, you know, I've been looking for um, you know reason for gold to 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 break higher Re- recently. Was obviously like geopolitics, but also the fact that the Fed is is uh, sort of like. Um, um, uh, losing out on the on, the, on inflation and, and the inflation uh, narrative, right? Um, you know, the fact that basically the Fed's losing control of, of inflation is a positive for gold. Um, but at the moment, I would be really careful because obviously, um, you know, the, the CBR, the, the Central Bank of Russia's assets have been have been frozen. And, and the only the only assets they can still trade is basically like uh, China's, China's one and, and gold. Uh, which is a large part of their reserve. So I'd be really worried um, this week about um, trading just macro. Um, I think you could see like complete dislocations uh, on the back of um, you know mm-hmm. when you know gold when it's the only asset you've got left to, to sell. Um, you know what can happen. So I, personally, I wouldn't touch gold here, uh, and I, I really mm-hmm. hope that crypto crypto catches a bid because if if crypto doesn't catch a bid in the middle of like, uh, you know, basically like capital controls and, and it's really the time where it's sort of like, should be becoming um, useful, then, you know, I think we have to worry.
0: That's an interesting uh, take. Juliet. it's been fantastic having you on Forward Guidance. Uh, if you had to sort of summarize your views um, for our audience before you leave, or, or a parting word you want to you know, leave our audience with, um, what would you have to say?
1: I mean, at, at this point, um, be extremely careful again like you know we can uh, um, this week it's not about trading macro it's about uh trading dislocations it's about trading um you know forced selling or forced buying of assets you know we we could get into um times where you know nothing makes any sense anymore so so i'd really emphasize the fact that um you know if you want to um trade your sort of like medium term long term view don't go with don't go with leverage um which is what i'm what, what i'm currently doing I, I, I do like to use the ongoing noise to um to basically like uh, trade um you know assets that i really want to own uh in the sort of like um, medium term which is you know i like to pick up value in in, in europe um, the rest is obviously not something that we're going to get massive opportunities in, but I do like uh, buying commodities. And I think, you know, the last uh, sort of um, um, obvious, but again, like quite risky, uh, obvious um, uh, a trade that, that I like is basically to um, sell five-year five year bonds. So have, looking for like higher nominal yields. Um, and I think what's interesting here is that obviously, you know, the, the, the noise... Um, and the war can, can actually, um, you know, lower the the front end, uh, the, the number of hikes that are going to be delivered at the front end. But I don't think it will uh, really mess up with them, uh, with where we're going to go uh, eventually. And I think it's, I can see like a um, strong, uh, I have strong conviction in, in the fact that five years is, like, is going at least to 2.5%.
0: Wow, um, Juliet, I really like your analysis. Extremely sophisticated uh, research and and charts. It's been great having you on Forward Guidance. Do you want to just, uh, quickly just tell some viewers, you know, about sort of um, JDI research and also who your sort of client base is? I take it, given this is very sophisticated, it's not your your typical you know retail investor, right?
1: No, I mean I've got a few family offices, a um, few high net worth as clients. Uh, but really, the bulk of my customers are, um, you know, institutionals, um, whether banks, real money, um, hedge funds, um, and 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 I've got like two tiers, uh, which is basically one tier is basically getting everything right, which is like JDI comprehensive, and a second tier where you basically get to speak to me every day. Um, you know, you like it, you don't, but um, that's basically the premium, uh, the premium, um, the, the the premium um, subscription, um, which which is basically mostly uh, um, uh, institutional as well.
0: Oh, very exclusive. So that's why I feel very lucky that we were able to to get you on and uh, share your analysis, um, Juliet. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you everyone for watching. You can uh, follow Juliet's work out um, on Twitter at Juliet JDI. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you very much.